Lord, as we look in your word this morning, I pray that you would help each one of us hear and perceive those things that you mean for us. I pray that you would help us to know the things you want us to know. Change us into the people in Christ you mean us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. I thought it was an interesting coincidence that the movie Chicken Little was released at the same time the evolutionists are crying about the sky falling because of the change in Kansas uh, standards on teaching of evolution. Do you guys, do you know what I'm talking about? Did you see the front page of the paper? Anyway, you know, we're at the middle of the jokes in the country again for a while because those narrow-minded ignoramuses on the state school board think there's problems with evolution. You know, part of this debate on evolution and creation has to do with what do you know and what do you not know and what can you know? It has to do with knowledge and there's... uh, There's perception of knowledge sometimes about things that people really don't know what they're talking about. Evolutionists, if you've studied this at all, you know, make claims that simply cannot be validated. If you talk to someone just at a very basic philosophical level, Frank, this is right up your alley. If someone says, there is no God, you know, to say that, to make sense logically, they have to know everything there is to know in the universe. Or they cannot make an exclusionary statement if they don't know everything. If I told you, you have no applesauce in your kitchen, I can't know that unless I've been in your kitchen. I've examined all of your kitchen, and therefore I can say, I know everything that's there. I know what's there. I know what's not there. There's no applesauce in your kitchen. In this thing about evolution and creation, where are we at, where did we come from, how did we get here, etc., you have people making claims about what they know and what they don't know, or what I know and what you don't know, or what I can know and what you can't know. A guy years ago, he wrote something about his school and his upbringing, about what he knew and what he didn't know. And he wasn't that well educated. Listen to what he said. He said, uh, Sam was his name. Sam said, don't know much about history. Don't know biology. Don't know much about a science book and don't know much about the French I took, Adrian. But... I do know something. I do know that I love you and I know that if you love me too... What a wonderful world this would be. There's a deficient education on one hand, upside on the other. He didn't know about geography or trigonometry either. Didn't know algebra or what a slide rule was for. But I do know one and one is two. And if this one could be with you, what a wonderful world this would be. Now, <clears throat> Sam Cooke, you know, this song's been covered by many others. But Sam Cooke sang this in the 60s, four decades ago, when we still thought education was pretty good. See, besides what he didn't know, he did know something. And you couldn't shake him about what he knew. He did know that he loved this girl, right? I, do, I don't know all these other things, but this one thing I do know, I know that I love you. So I might not know lots of things, but I do know something. So this poorly educated guy knew at least one thing. He knew that he loved this woman. Now, you know... In the arena of the universe and our existence and knowledge, you know, the way things are, um, we will always be um, deficient. That is, there's only so much you and I will ever know uh, in the vast ocean of what could be known. We'll only know just a little smidgen. Isaac Newton, I love this, you know, we still use Newtonian physics. This guy was one of the giants that modern scientists stand on the shoulders of to figure out how to get a spaceship around the moon and macro 
physics related to gravity and planetary motions, etc. But Isaac Newton said, as much as he knew and as much as great a scientist as he was, he said that he felt like he was a child playing with pebbles on the shore of the ocean, with the vast universe of knowledge being the ocean out there. Even though he knew a lot on one hand, he knew he knew almost nothing on the other. He knew a few things, didn't know lots of other things. This is all going someplace as far as where we're at this morning in the scriptures. But, you know, you may find, you may have felt this in the past, that if you wanted to share your faith in Christ with someone else who wasn't a believer, didn't share your point of view, you might feel like you couldn't do it because you didn't know enough to defend Christ. That is, you might talk to someone and they would ask you questions and you wouldn't have the answers. And you'd say with Sam, well, I don't know about that and I don't know about this. But my hope is this morning out of the passage in John 9, you'll be able to say with Sam Cook, and you'll be able to say with the blind man who's given sight, there's lots of things I don't know, but I do know this. I know one thing, and I'm unshakable in it, and I know it because it's my testimony. It's what happened to me. That's the story we're reading this morning in John 9. One thing I know. You can turn there if you want. John 9, 1 through 34 will do almost the whole story this morning. What do we know and what do we not know? What can we know? John 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Let me just insert here. The supposition was the blindness was a judgment from God. It wasn't a question of if this was a judgment. It was who was the judgment on, whose sin was, uh, was the cause of it. You know, if you read Job, it's somewhat of, this, of a similar thought. You're experiencing these bad things you must have done wrong. It's a supposition that they knew something that, in fact, they really did not know. Jesus answered, uh, neither this man sinned nor his parents. It was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is a day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. We've looked at this statement of Jesus before. We won't touch on it this morning. When he said this, he spat on the ground, made clay of the spit, and applied the clay to his eyes, and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated, John tells us, sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this one, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Others were saying, no, but he is like him, or he looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? By the way, as we read through this, listen to how many questions are asked and how many times the statement is said, I know and I don't know. How then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to a Siloam and wash. So... I went away and washed, and I received sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. They bring to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now, it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others were saying, 
How can a man who's a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they say to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, He's a prophet. The Jews then did not believe of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, or who opened his eyes we do not know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, He's of age. Ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. This means tell the truth, don't lie. It's the same phrase used in Joshua, in Hebrew, not Greek, when Joshua commands Achan to tell the truth about what he'd done. Give glory to God means tell the truth, quit fooling around. What verse am I in? Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him, yeah, good humor, and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here's an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. We're going to look at two things briefly before we tackle the main subject here. First is, who's sin? Who's sin? Remember, the disciples look, they see a hardship, they assume it's judgment related to sin. So they say there in verse 2, Who's, Rabbi, whose sin, that his, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus says, neither. It's not the result of a judgment of God on a specific sin. It's that God's work, God's glory might be displayed in him. You know, we live in a world that is subject to sin and the fallout or repercussions from sin, which is death in, in one a look or appearance or another. It is helpful, I think, if you experience some hardship in your life, it's helpful to say, Lord, are you saying something to me? Is this hardship coming because I've done something? Do I need to change my mind about what I've done or how I viewed a thing or what I've chosen to think is true or not in the past? That's appropriate. Say, Lord, is this a judgment? Are you disciplining me? Uh, This definitely has a place in theology. You know, in the Corinthian church... Uh, a church blessed with all kinds of material possessions, they were sitting down at the Lord's Supper in a way that was so dishonorable both to Christ and what he'd done for them and to each other that Paul told them, you are being disciplined through sickness and death. God is bringing this about because of what you're doing. So certainly it's appropriate. If I'm experiencing some particular hardship in my life, something beyond my control, it's appropriate to ask the Lord, 
Have I blown it? Are you speaking to me? Do I need to hear something specific related to my thoughts, my behavior, my past, whatever? It's appropriate. If God is bringing something to pass to get your attention or to change behavior, though, you'll know. He won't leave you in the dark. He'll tell you, yeah, this is it. In other words, you don't have to go beat the bushes. You know, typically, uh, people with tender consciences, they're the ones who will ask themselves the longest, have I done something wrong? The ones who don't need to. The ones who are a little uh, harder around, crusty around the edges, are the ones who probably God needs to bring some, some means of help. Uh, you know, so that they, he gets their attention to say, okay, we need to change course here. We need to look at something a little different. But it's fine to say, if, I, if something comes in, it's difficult, whatever, to stop and say, Lord, is this from you? Do I need to hear something from you? It's appropriate. The truth is, though, for most of us, most of the time, hardship happens in this world, forces outside our control, because we live in a world that has sin and death in it. And, you know, this happens to those who know God. It happens to those who don't know God. We've just had two safe deliveries of little children in our church, which is a great thing. But, you know, Christian families lose children in um, premature birth, uh, at birth. We've known Christian families who've lost little babies to cancer. Very difficult things. Very, very troubling. And, and when we look at those situations, I think we're less tempted in our culture and our time than the disciples were here. But sometimes you look at someone else's life and say, God's getting them. Well, he may be, and most of the time he probably isn't. Whatever that hardship is, it is not necessarily related to any judgment. It could just be that we live in the world. The upside to this is that whatever that hardship looks like, whatever that force is outside my control that's impinging on my life or the life of someone I know is, Jesus says... This is so that the works of God can be displayed in him. In fact, later you know in John 11, Jesus says he's glad Lazarus died. And there, back in Bethany, Lazarus' family weeping and moaning. Is Jesus glad that there's sorrow and sadness? No. But he says this is for the glory of God. I'm going to take this bad, hurtful, difficult thing outside the control of those people involved and I'm going to use it for God's glory. And he says exactly that same thing here about this man born blind. Not a judgment from God. Jesus says God allowed this, didn't cause it directly. God allowed it, and he intends to use it for his purposes. Whatever else, when you feel difficult things in your life or you see difficult things in the lives of others, physical infirmity, business failure, whatever that might look like, especially in your own life, ask God, Lord, how do you want to use this in my life? How will this be used for your glory? How will this further your purposes? The other thing I want to look at before tackling this last thing is the issue, this has come up before it comes up again, is Jesus good or bad? What do we make of this guy? You know, on one hand, he does these miracles. Here's this blind man that now sees. And so we say he's good. On the other hand, the Pharisees say, hey, if he was good, he wouldn't be doing this on The Sabbath, we've looked extensively at this issue of the Sabbath uh, before. I'm not going to get into that this morning. But there's this conundrum because on one hand, he performs the miracles. He helps people. He heals people. He feeds the crowds. But he does so in a way that's just outside our borders. And we're not quite sure what to make of this. So the story that we're in this morning has conflict in part because the people involved in it are trying to say, what do we make of these things? 
we thought we knew things, and that would infer certain things in this story, but we're not sure. Is he good or is he bad? We thought if he was good, it looked this way, and it's not. What do we make of this? By the way, as you know, Jesus has said, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. It's legal or lawful to do good on the Sabbath, which is what he was doing. By the way, it's interesting. Uh, commentators think the work here was a, a prohibition against mixing food on the Sabbath. That is, you know, the Jews didn't have, just have the Mosaic Law. They had all their treatises. The Pharisees had come down with laws. They've, they'd added lots and lots of rules to interpret those laws. So if you had one commandment in the Law of Moses that said, keep the Sabbath holy... Well, they might have two or three hundred things under that that said this is what it means to keep the Sabbath holy. It's thought that when he mixed the spit in the clay, that was probably the work. So anyway, for what it's worth. But what do we make of Jesus? What can we know or not know? Now, down to brass tacks, or the place I want to land this morning. Review this passage with me. I'm going to go through this somewhat quickly, but listen to these questions. I count seven. Verse 2, who sinned? that brought about the blindness. Verse 8, is this really the man who was blind? Verse 15, how were you healed? Verse 16, how can sinners heal? If Jesus healed and he did so on the Sabbath, how can a sinner heal? Verse 17, what do you say, you blind man that now sees, what do you say about Jesus? Verse 19, is this really your blind son? Verse 26, how were you healed? Also go through and highlight the I know, I don't know statements. I also count seven. Verse 12, I don't know where Jesus is. Verse 20, we know this is our blind son or this is our son who was blind. Verse 21, we don't know how he sees. We don't know who opened his eyes. Verse 29, we know God spoke to Moses and we don't know where Jesus is from. Verse 30, you don't know where Jesus is from. Verse 31, we know God doesn't hear sinners. This culminates in verse 25. You know, John uses chiasm, and although the text I looked at to show chiasm in John didn't break this apart the way I thought it should, I still think verse 25 is the point we're supposed to get. This is a passage filled with questions, and it's filled with statements about I know and I don't know. And verse 25 in the middle is the payoff. Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. This is a passage about knowledge. What do we know? What can we know? What can we infer? It's a, it's a passage full of questions. Where is he? How did he do it? How did it happen? Why a sinner on the Sabbath, etc.? Verse 25 is the payoff. I don't know many things, this poorly educated blind man says, with Sam Cooke. Don't know much about all these things, but I know one thing. I was blind, and now I see. See, for him, he knows the only thing he needs to. He knows that his life, his reality was changed, and he was blind. And now he sees. And he doesn't know about all those other questions. He doesn't even engage. Whether he's a sinner, I don't know, he says here. Now next week, we'll look at uh, the rest of the story. Jesus introduces himself personally to him, and he moves off of this, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. But right here he says, you know, I don't even know that. But I know one thing. When 
you talk to other people about Christ, and you should, we should. That's one of the reasons we're here. We're martyrs, we're witnesses for Christ. It's one of the reasons when we're saved, he leaves us around the earth for 50 or 60 years or whatever, or 10 or 20, before we go home to be with him. Because we're left here as his martyrs, as his witnesses, that is to tell others about Christ. Now, as we do, I do think for most of us, one of the great fears that has to do with sharing our faith with others is being able to answer people's objections and questions. We're afraid if I say something, a couple things, what will they think of me? That's probably the first one. We need to get over that fear. But secondary to that, it's, well, what if they ask me questions I don't know? How do I make a convincing argument? So, for instance, <clears throat> there are many things you could know about your Bible. None of us will ever know all of them. But we did a Sunday school class for a semester before just on how we got the Bible we got, why it's reliable, the autographs, the manuscripts, the languages, etc., you could know all that stuff about the autographs and the integrity of the transcription, etc. You may know it or you may not, but even if you don't know it, even if you can't ably defend the integrity of the Bible, the text that we have, even if you don't know all that good information that I hope you'll learn some of about the Bible, you can still say, I don't know about that, but I do know this, I know what Christ did, for my life. I know what Christ did in me, or I know what Christ did for me. You should study the Bible. You should know some of the things of why it's reliable. These are important things to know. You'll feel more confident if you know them. But if you don't, don't be intimidated any more than our blind friend was. He's not worried about what he doesn't know. He just says, I know this. There are many Christian doctrines, if you're talking with someone else, that it's helpful to know. It's helpful to know things like homardiology, the study of sin, or pneumatology, the study of the Spirit, or knowledge of the Spirit, Christology, things that are true about Christ. And we should know some of all of that too. Helpful. Doctrine. It's the teachings we base our life on. It's helpful. But you know, none of us will ever know all the doctrines or know them in the ways that they could be known or perhaps should be known. So if we're in a conversation with someone else and we get to the point where we say, you know, I don't know, that's okay. Because we don't have to emphasize what we don't know. All of us don't know more than we know. With Isaac Newton, we're a little further off the beach from him, maybe on the ocean of knowledge. But we'll always have tons of things we don't know. Don't worry about that. You tell them what you do know. If you've trusted Christ, if Christ is your Savior, then with the blind man you have a story that no one else has. And I don't know what that looks like for you. It looks a little different for everyone. But you have a story that is uniquely yours that no one else in the universe has. You have a story that's just yours. And you know it like no one else knows it. So when, when you're sharing Christ with someone else and they're raising objections, you can say, don't know much about history. Don't know that trigonometry either, but I do know this. I don't know about original sin. I don't know the doctrine of whatever, the way I should maybe. But I do know what Christ did for me. Christian history, um, 
is great stuff. You know, if you think about, read about uh, Paul Myers, authors like Paul Myers or F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, people give you history about the way the gospel changed the Roman world in the day of the New Testament. It's remarkable. Or the great movements of the uh, evangelists and missionaries in the 1800s changed the face of the world, literally. Or the denominational lines and the breakups and the impact of theology in one group and another. Fascinating stuff. But you know, if you don't know any of that, it's still okay if you're talking to someone else about Christ like the blind man was. You can say, I don't know. But I do know this. I know what Christ did for me. By the way, John Ankerberg is a pretty well-known Christian apologist. He said as a high school student, someone he started sharing his faith in Christ with his fellow students. And inevitably, someone would say, hey, what about this? They'd come up with some question. And his, his uh, routine response was this. I don't know. I'll look into that and get back with you. And sometimes that's an appropriate thing to say, too. You could say, if they're serious about a question or an objection, you could say, I'm not sure, but let me look into that and I'll get back with you. You can do that, too. If you don't know, say so, and sometimes it's good to get back to them. Um, You know, there's apologetics, uh, talking about Chicken Little and the sky falling. You know, creation and evolution are big issues uh, today, currently. By the way, not just in Kansas. Uh, This is an aside. People want to frame this in terms of a backward Middle West, Midwest state when they talk about evolution and creation. This is going on all over the nation. Ohio has adopted standards. The front page of the newspaper talks about this is in a court case in, I think it's Pennsylvania. Ten states have made changes in their public school curriculum related to the problems and the holes with evolution. It is, frankly, it is a joke and a fiasco the defense that the scientific community puts behind evolution because any objective criteria, in fact, evolutionists evolutionists themselves will tell you, many will tell you, there's no way they have answers to the questions about how these things have occurred. They have no clue whatsoever, no, no closer today than they did 150 years ago when Darwin was on the Beagle, just none at all. So... If you know about the debate related to evolution and creation, that might be helpful. Or if you know some of the hard science, micro and macro, about how fine-tuned this universe is. By the way, if you were in Sunday school not long ago, we looked at some of these things as well. You know how, you know how improbable life on earth is, just looking at natural processes of themselves. And if you know those things, and you're talking with someone else about Christ... That's helpful. But if you say, you know, I don't know how old the earth is and I don't know what to tell you about the geologic ages, that's okay too. Because you can still land on, I don't know that, but I do know this. I know what Christ did for me. I know what my life looked like before and I know what the impact of Christ in my life has been. When I was uh, in high school, uh, I was really a mess, and most people had no clue. Because like lots of kids, I looked pretty good on the outside. I was a good-looking guy, my wife will tell you, in high school, and especially if I wore the right clothing, you know. I, I was uh, sharp enough that I didn't study, but I got good grades. I was successful in athletics. And, 
And if you just looked at Mike Halpin's life from the outside, you'd say it looks pretty good. And, you know, the, tr- the truth was I remember weeping outside my house after basketball games because inside I was so stinking empty, just entirely alone in the world and knew it. And uh, I got to college, and a guy shared the gospel. And I'd heard the gospel before, but it, it didn't... Uh, I was a partying guy, you know, with lots of things going on and uh, involved in sports at K-State, running track and smoking marijuana before practices. You know, I was really, really sharp. And uh, this guy shares the gospel with me. And for the first time in my life, it made sense. Because all of a sudden I understood that Christ was the solution to my emptiness, to this incredible pit of despair that others didn't know about, that I knew about every day, I understood he was the answer. So when Christ came into my life, people on the outside wouldn't have seen a huge change. And by the way, it took me a while to even have any clue what walking with the Lord looked like. But I'll tell you, the difference for me was the difference between uh, being willing to commit suicide just to end my misery and having a sense of purpose in life. And the difference for me was I had no peace before and I didn't know what to do with the big picture of life. And now I was reading my Bible and I just couldn't get enough of it. I was devout. I'd literally, I was reading my Bible eight hours a day and that wasn't enough. And I was reading everything I could get my hands on because all of a sudden I had a purpose for living. All of a sudden life made sense because I knew who I belonged to. And now I wasn't empty anymore. Well, no one could take that away from me. It didn't matter if I could answer or defend the faith from one angle or another. As a young Christian, I, I didn't know up from down. But Christ, I knew what the gospel, I knew what Christ had done in my life if I didn't know anything else, and I could share that with others. You have a story nobody else has. Christ, if you've trusted Christ, if the Holy Spirit's alive in your heart, you have a story, you know something, that no one else knows. You know what Christ did for you. You know what Christ did in you. By the way, even if you came to Christ at a young age, if you trusted Jesus before your memories, like some of my girls did, I know, you you say, well, I have no transformation. That is, I wasn't with my dad at the parties. And then over here... uh, you, know, you still have a transformation and you still have a story. You can say the Lord's kept me from all kinds of downsides of life. And I've had my struggles and it's been in a relationship with Christ and this is what it's looked like. Someone who's known Christ from their early ages, this is not a bad thing. This is entirely a good thing. You're spared. You're saved from all kinds of things. This is a good thing. No one has your story. You're the only one in the universe who knows what you know. You're the only one who knows what Christ means to you, what he's done in your life. When you share Christ with others, if you can answer some of their questions or their conflicts or whatever, that's fine and that's good. But in the end, if you don't know more than the blind man, you're doing just fine. You can say, I know this person over here named Jesus came along and I was blind and now I'm not. And you can tell somebody else, this is what my life looked like before, and this is what it looks like now. This was my experience before, and this is what it is now. I was blind, and now I see. If that's all you know, it's enough.
It's enough. <clears throat> As it was for the blind man. <clears throat> Excuse me. We can get lost in theological debates. We can get lost in apologetics. We can get lost in science and philosophy and you name it. We can go on and on and on. And there are people who do. You know, uh, unfortunately, uh, most of the uh, universities in our land are populated by people who don't believe in God. They don't believe in the ultimate reality. They don't believe in the one who is in himself knowledge and truth. But they know a lot. Of what value is it, what they know? And how do they know what they know is true, especially in some of the sciences? How do they know what they know is true? See, we can know or proclaim that we know many, many things and still be out to lunch in the most important thing in the world, knowing the one who is the way, the truth, the life. My quiet time, I was reading uh, John this week, and I love Jesus' words to Pilate. He says, for this reason, for this purpose, I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. If someone wants the truth, and you know Christ, you know enough of the truth to help them come to the one who is the truth. You with Jesus can be the witness who shares with them your story. Don't know much about this or that, but this is my story. This is what I know to be true. And most of the times, that's enough. So, I do encourage you, by the way, this is not a plea to be ignoramuses. Uh, I think Christians should be, we should aspire to know as much as we can, we should aspire. I, I think you know that. If you come to Sunday school class, you know that here. We want to learn. We want to grow in knowledge and truth. And I would encourage you to, to grow in that area as much as you can. But we'll always be ignorant to some degree in anything we're studying. We're, we're always no more than in the, the little shallows there on the edge of the universe of knowledge. <clears throat> so keep growing. But rest on this. You can at least, and you can always, share, I was blind and now I see with someone else. You can share, this is what Christ did for me. This is what Christ has done in me. This is the one thing I know. And if you don't get any more out than that, you're doing just fine. Let's pray. Lord, it strikes me that each one of us has a story that just as Luke recorded in the book of Acts, the continuing saga or acts and events, works of Jesus Christ on earth through his spirit and the church. Lord, you're still at work in this world today and you're at work in people no bigger, no smaller, no smarter, no more ignorant than us. You're working in us, Lord, and through us. And I pray, Lord, that we aspire to grow in knowledge, that we are in your word daily, that the truth, the reality of your word is bringing us into more and more freedom, is bringing us into more and more of the experience of life as Jesus talked about in John 8. But Lord, no matter how much we learn and know or think we know, I pray that you'll help us to be quick when we're with others to share with them what you have done in us, to share with them what you mean to us, what your work in our life has been.
that, Lord, probably for none of us, is it true that we were blind physically and now we see. But, Lord, all of us have a story of Jesus Christ's impact in our life and what that looks like. And I pray you give us boldness to share that with others. Lord, help us to, in a healthy sense, ignore objections that are simply objections. Help us as we interact with others to get to the root of the issue. What will they do with Jesus? Lord, if there's anyone uh, here this morning that has not yet trusted you, I pray that the reality of you, that the freedom you bring, that the forgiveness that is yours to give would loom so large in front of them they would simply fall in to you, to faith in Jesus Christ. Thanks for loving us, Lord. Thanks for giving each of us a story. Thanks that though we were blind, now we see. In Jesus' name, amen.